heard from uh, Zechariah 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 8. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the, ba- this is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horse goes toward the north country. The white one goes after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. Uh, boys and girls can head out to Story Keepers uh, or to nursery. As the kids are heading out, let's uh, pray God's help as we think about the passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your help as we've been going through the book of Zechariah. We pray that as we come to what on the surface looks like uh, very bizarre things, that you would give us insight and understanding, that you would see, help us see how this applies to our lives. And that for all of us, all at different points of faith in our journey of faith, that this would be a significant time where we encounter you, the living God, in your written word. Meet us now, we pray, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, yet still I have a dream. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slave owners and the sons of former slaves will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. I doubt I need to tell many, if indeed any of you, where those words come from. Uh, they are, of course, from Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech delivered at the Lincoln Memorial on the 28th of August, 1963, referenced just this week by the Ukrainian President Zelensky in his uh, address to the US Congress. And through the articulation of that dream, King successfully mobilized uh, countless people, many of whom at that time felt discouraged and demoralized, uh, mobilized them into a national uh, civil rights movement that gave them some hope for the future. Those emotions are not dissimilar to those that were felt by the people of Israel in the prophet Zechariah's day. Jerusalem had become the ground zero of its day when in 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had laid siege on the city, pillaged the city, uh, destroyed the city and the temple. That was then followed by the Israelites being taken into exile in Babylon, an exile that lasted 70 years. By Zechariah's day, as we've been seeing over recent weeks, they're back now in Jerusalem. They've been back for 20 years. But Jerusalem and Judah are now occupied, an occupied state ruled by the Persians. The, still, the city is still in ruins. The temple rebuild had started, but then stalled. And so overall, these people were also disillusioned, disheartened, and demoralized. And it's in this context that Zechariah has stepped forward to give, I had, have a dream speech. In his case, it's more, I've had these visions speech, but the purpose was the same. It was to comfort and to encourage a people who were fed up with the status quo. Well, today we come to the final three of Zachariah's visions. You may recall a couple of weeks ago that I made the point that there's a shape to the visions with an inward movement through the first half of the visions as they started out with an international focus, which narrowed then to a national focus on Israel, then a local focus on Jerusalem and the temple. That brought us to the central vision in, in chapter 3 of Joshua, the high priest, reclothed in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But then the vision starts to turn outward again. So last week in, the, in chapter 4, we saw the setting return to the temple. And now this week, we have visions that, that uh, focus back out on the nation of Israel and then on the nations at large. It's actually a strong case, I think, to be made that the vision of the flying scroll and the vision of the woman in a basket are actually one vision together, not two, uh, focused on the nation and her sin. Whether it's one or two isn't going to affect our understanding or interpretation. We're not going to deal with that because, frankly, we've got enough to handle as it is because Zachariah's vision seemed to become progressively more bizarre with each one in this latter half. As Marilyn read the visions, it perhaps felt more, uh, less like the inspiring oratory of I have a dream and more like Lucy in the sky with diamonds, more hallucination than help. But I hope we're going to discover through these visions this morning this, and here's our sermon in a sentence today, that God's commitment to live with us required an eviction and a coronation, and God gave us both. I'm going to think about it through four, four parts today. First of all, dishonesty is dealt with. Secondly, sin will be banished. 
Thirdly, the nations will be defeated. Fourthly, a priest is crowned. Also, we might understand how God's commitment to live with us required an eviction and a coronation, both of which he achieved. So first then, uh, dishonesty is dealt with. Look at how the vision, the first vision begins in chapter five, one to two. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. This is one mighty piece of parchment. The scroll measured 30 feet by 15 feet. It's actually less of a scroll and more of a billboard, actually a flying billboard. I read this week that aerial advertising is said to be one of the most impactful and cost-effective ways to advertise, and, and I would believe it. When Tara's dad used to live in Miami Beach, we'd visit there at Thanksgiving, we'd go to the beach, and invariably you'd see these small planes in the sky pulling banners behind them. You've probably seen them too, various places. Actually, a few years ago, a survey was conducted of over 2,000 people, uh, beachgoers at Miami Beach, in which it was discovered that 88% of those surveyed remembered that within the previous half hour, there had been a plane overhead with an aerial advertisement. What was even more impressive was that 79% of those surveyed also remembered the message. That's hard to compete with in the marketing world. I'd be delighted if half an hour after this morning's service, 79% of you would be able to articulate in any way, fashion, what this morning's message was about. Well, Zachariah's vision contains a flying billboard. However, his isn't being pulled by anything. It's a self-propelled banner of just enormous proportions. Every now and then I talk to someone or I read someone say, you know, I'm struggling with a particular decision in my life. And they'll say something like, you know, I wish God would just write his will for me in giant big letters in the sky. That would really make it much simpler for me, whether that's whether I should get married, who I should marry, where I should live, go to school, all those kind of things. Well, here God does it. However, the problem is that it's not the kind of message we were really looking for or hoping for. I suspect that Zechariah had a hunch, even before he sees the writing on this scroll, that this is not going to be good news. Because scrolls aren't mentioned very often in the Old Testament, but when they are, it's invariably very bad news. We see that in Jeremiah 36, we see it in Ezekiel 2 and 3. In the Old Testament, if you've got happy news to share, you generally didn't write it on a scroll. So when Zachariah sees this flying scroll, I imagine he's thinking to himself, "Uh -uh, this isn't going to be good. And that was a good hunch, because look at verses 3 and 4. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Now, just as was the case with the tablets for the Ten Commandments, this scroll is written on both sides. That was intentional with covenantal documents, which, as we'll see in a moment, this scroll is. It's written on both sides so that no one could fudge the document. That is, no one could add to it. 
It's a bit like when you're writing a check and you put a line through the, after the amount so that no one can add some money that you're going to owe through the check beyond what you wanted to actually pay. So what we find is, is this scroll is written on both sides, and on both sides is a curse. Now, when we read the word curse in the Bible, we shouldn't think in terms of sort of a witch's spell or something like that. Rather, curse is the Old Testament word for God's just judgment on wrongdoing. It's God's verdict on sin and the breaking of the covenant between God and his people. God's covenant in the Bible basically follows a threefold structure. God says, here's what I've done for you. That's his grace towards us. He says, here's how I want you to live in response to what I've done for you. That's our response. And then the third part is always, here are the blessings if you obey me, and here are the curses if you disobey me. Well, the exile had been part of the curse, one which God had definitely warned the people about beforehand. It had been a curse in response to the people's idolatry, to their worshiping of other gods instead of of Yahweh. What's interesting here is that the indictment against Israel isn't now for idolatry. As far as we can tell, the former practice of pagan idolatry that had been so much a part of Israel's sin prior to the exile, and indeed the primary reason for that exile, no longer seemed to afflict the community in the same way. They seem to have returned at least to the formal worship of the Lord alone. That at least was some progress. But what we discover here in the scroll is that God's people still had some shocking blind spots in their lives, striking inconsistencies that needed to be addressed, deeper idolatries for which the Israelites had apparently given themselves a free pass. And the specific sins that God highlights here are stealing and swearing falsely. One on one side of the scroll, one on the other. And these particular sins, I I think, were probably highlighted, singled out, because they're the ones that were negatively affecting the life of the community of God's people since they had come back from exile. But not only that, that left attended, the, the curse from these ongoing sins of stealing and swearing falsely could indeed undo the whole relationship they had with God. That actually is the significance of us being given the dimensions of the scroll, because the dimensions of the scroll were the exact same dimensions as those of the portico in Solomon's temple, that is the place where admission to the temple was either granted or denied. God sends a warning in the massive letters on this banner in the sky your lack of integrity is going to be your undoing. Now, we can get a bit uncomfortable when God starts to get this kind of specific with us. We prefer generalities rather than particulars. We're, we're, we're more comfortable just being told we're sinners in general than here is particularly what your sin is that you need to address. You've perhaps heard the joke about the pastor who visited the farmer one day and said, if you had $2,000 would you give a thousand of it to the Lord? The farmer said, of course I would. The farmer said, well, if you had two cows, would you give one to the Lord? He said, yes, of course I would. The pastor said, well, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? The farmer replied, now, you know, that's not fair. I have two pigs. And that's kind of how we feel about particulars. We're okay dealing in hypotheticals or even admitting generic sin because, well, I'm a sinner, nobody's perfect, so I'm in good company there. But when God zooms into specific sins, 
it feels a bit like he's invading our privacy. The Israelites perhaps felt that God was just getting too specific here with mention of the sins of stealing and bearing false witness. Some commentators have identified these two infractions as representative of the Ten Commandments as a whole, stealing as an example coming from the second half of the Ten Commandments, commandment number eight, swearing falsely by God's name, come as an example from the first half, uh, taking God's name in vain. However, swearing falsely here, I think also links to the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. I think the fact that Zechariah 5 has these infractions in the order that it does, which would fit with commandment 8 and commandment 9, suggests that's actually what's in view here. Most likely, these two infractions were not isolated incidents, but rather two successive acts by a person who had stolen from another person and then sworn falsely in court to escape punishment. Now, we might be tempted to go, well, phew, I can get out from this one. I've never had the exact experience of stealing from someone and then ending up in court and swearing falsely to get off. But not so fast, because if you just boil this all down, what it's about is dishonesty, which we've all had a little bit of experience with, my guess is. Dishonesty in the wor- our words, where we lie, where we misrepresent or embellish the truth for our own benefit, dishonesty for material gain, whether that's on our tax returns or those things that we take at work, which we know we're not permitted to. And when the angel refers in verse 4 to the thief and to the one who swears falsely by my name, I think he's telling us that he's not talking about those of us who have had occasional lapses of judgment in the honesty department. He's talking rather about any of us whose dishonest conduct is of such a settled and persistent nature that thief and perjurer would be fitting descriptions of our basic character. Does God care about dishonesty? You bet he does. From what we see here, apparently he cares very much so. He hates dishonesty because it's the very opposite of everything that he is, which is light and truth and and beauty. It's the devil who's the father of lies and dishonesty. And so God promises here he's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with dishonesty, sometimes later, sometimes sooner, but deal with it, he does. And so in the vision, this giant flying scroll is dispatched. And like Dorothy's house in The Wizard of Oz is most effective in just dealing with the bad guys. God hits the people here where it hurts, in their homes. Here's the first of our three houses in our the sermon title is A Tale of Three Houses. Here's the first one today. Inherent in the vision is the message you can run, but you can't hide. The judgment of God cannot be escaped. And that judgment, it appears, is intended to fit the crime, match the offense. To those for whom material gain and prosperity and its pursuit through theft and perjury supersedes personal integrity, the Lord will strike at the very heart of those material comforts. Verse 4, it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. It's a stark reminder that any of us prepared to sacrifice holiness for happiness will find that pursuing happiness without holiness will eat away at us until we attain neither of them in the end. Dishonesty will be dealt with. 
Secondly, sin will be removed. Look at how the vision continues in verses 5 to 8. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. During uh, one period while our daughter Fiona was in college, when she uh, would come home for vacation, she and Tara would be avid watchers together of episodes of the Gilmore Girls. I would occasionally sit down and watch an episode or part of an episode with them, but despite asking questions of them both, never really had enough of the backstory to get what was really going on. Believe it or not, this vision of Zachariah is a bit like an episode of the Gilmore Girls. There are three key women in it, but more than that, making sense of it all is dependent on picking up allusions to a whole host of things that have happened previously. And before we address those things, just a word on the woman in the basket described as wickedness. We would be mistaken to judge this text as sexist or patriarchal due to the portrayal of iniquity or wickedness as a woman. For one thing, as we'll see in a few moments, while wickedness is portrayed as one woman here, deliverance from wickedness will be portrayed by two women. But in addition to that, the, woman tra- the word translated wickedness here in Hebrew actually sounds like the, the, the word Asherah, which uh, was a Canaanite idol, the fertility goddess to whom God's people would have previously turned to in their idolatry. It's also possible that the woman in the vision here represented a a temple prostitute, part of the idolatrous system of ancient pagan worship. Indeed, this woman might possibly, many people think, the woman in the basket provides some of the background for the prostitute in the Apostle uh, Apostle John's vision in Revelation 17. And if she's to be understood that way, then I think this image graphically reinforces the point we saw with the, the flying scroll that the economic and materialistic sins of the people have simply become a new form, a deeper form, perhaps a more subtle form of idolatry, of false worship in place of the more obvious idolatry of of worshiping pagan nations' idols that once plagued Israel prior to the exile. Now that they've come home, they've found a far more pernicious and deceptive idol to enslave them. They've become worshipers at the altar of materialism and personal profit. But in addition to that, to really get what is happening here, we we do need a little bit of backstory. For example, before the exile, another prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, had a rather concerning vision where in the vision, the glory of God leaves the temple. God abandons his people as these winged creatures, these cherubim, uh, who flanked the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple, they, they, they take off and they leave. Remember, the Ark was essentially the, the throne of God. It was an elaborate box. It contained God's commandments. Over the top of the Ark was what was called the mercy seat. Over that were the, these two-winged creatures, the cherubim. And with their departure, Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple. But now God's coming back, Zechariah says. But... With God coming back, we find there's actually another sharp exit happening, but this time it's not God leaving. We discover here that God's actually still in the business of sending into exile, but now it's not his people. 
he's sending to Babylon. Now it's sin itself that's going to Shinar, which is another name for Babylon. But the vision's even more specific than that, because as one commentator puts it, this is everything opposite to God. This is an anti-ark belonging to an anti-God that will be carried to an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem. Ezekiel had seen the glory of the Lord leave the temple. For God's glory to come back to the temple, something else has to leave. Sin has to leave because God cannot dwell with sin. So look at what happens, verses 9 to 11. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down on its base. Basket's literally an ephah, which was a kind of measuring container with a capacity of about five gallons. It was often used for trading in the marketplace, reinforcing yet again that the besetting sin of the people in Zechariah's day was primarily economic in character. And now Zechariah sees these two women come forward with wings like those of a stork. Storks are migratory birds, and so Zechariah naturally anticipates that there's some journey about to be taken, asks, where are they taking these baskets? And the answer comes, they're taking them to Shinar, where a house will be built for it. Here's our second house. It's an anti-ark belonging to an anti-god, carried to an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem, everything opposite to God and what he represents. Sin will, for once and for all, be dealt with. It will be exiled. Now, this whole thing appears totally bizarre to us, as I've said before, but I think there are actually two significant encouragements for us in this part of the vision. First of all, this vision reminds us of what is one of the most overlooked mercies of God's grace in our lives. I was uh, talking with one of you this week just about the battle we face daily fighting against our sin, and especially those besetting sins in our lives that we just can't seem to escape. And sometimes we we come through that struggle victoriously, successfully, but other times we lose the struggle. We lose that fight. We stumble and we fall. And that can, for some of us, just lead to overwhelming sense of guilt and shame over and over again. But in the midst of that encouragement, it can be so easy to forget that God has already been graciously restraining sin in our lives, pushing down the lead lid on wickedness so that although we've stumbled and we've sinned, we haven't fallen as far as we could have done or might have done had God not been there all the time working by his word and spirit to hold our sin in check. We need to praise God that sin is not allowed free reign in our lives. That knowledge should reassure us in the battle, so that even though we might lose a particular skirmish with temptation, we're reminded that it's the Lord, it's not wickedness, who has ultimate dominion in our lives. But there's a second encouragement here, I think, and that is that God is not satisfied with just restraining the effect and the power of sin in our lives. He's ultimately committed to remove it completely, that one day he's going to banish our sin into exile, never to return. So that while the vision of the flying scroll teaches that those who persist in sin 
will face the covenantal curse of God. For everyone who turns in genuine repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, God promises to work by his spirit to bear our guilt and shame away forever. Forever. Sin will be removed. Which brings us to the final vision at the beginning of chapter 6. I want to just mention this one briefly so we can get to the epilogue or the postscript of all the visions. So in chapter 6, 1 to 8, we see our third point, the nations are defeated. Now, if you've been here through the series, you may remember back in chapter 1 what happened there. This vision parallels the very first vision in chapter 1. In that vision, Zechariah saw different colored troops of horses, which were sent on this reconnaissance mission into the world, patrolling the earth, reporting back to the Lord what they'd found. The report that they came back with in chapter 1 was that the world was at rest. And as we commented there, that, that sounds good, you know, peace on earth, that's a good thing. But we actually saw it was not a good rest because the rest of the, of the nations was actually a self-assured, self-reliant rest that had come at the expense of the rest of God's people. And so God himself, we were told in chapter 1, was restless and promised to judge those nations. Well, the judgment comes here in this final vision. And now it's not just horses. It's chariots pulled by horses and not surprisingly, no ordinary chariots. These four chariots come out from behind these two mountains of bronze, symbolizing that they're coming out from the very presence of God. And these chariots can handle mountains. Most chariots are really only any use on flat surfaces, like in parking lots. But here, here's the kind of the biblical equivalent of F-35 fighter jets, agile and, and deadly and devastating in their effects. So that now God's, God's army is not just doing reconnaissance. They mean action because God means business. And he sends out the chariots in all different directions as needed to carry out their orders, which is what they do. And then in verse 8, we read that the God who had been restless in chapter 1 has now found rest. Why? Because justice has been done and his enemies have been defeated. It's a reminder to us that God's victory in history is 100% assured that no matter what we read on the news, in the media, God is going to win. God is going to win. It's just a matter of timing. Which brings us then to the final part of our section today. I didn't ask Marilyn to read this. This is sometimes called the postscript to Zachariah's night visions. So Zechariah has been showing us again and again through these visions, these first six chapters, a picture of the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom where the enemies of God will at last face justice, a kingdom where the suffering people of God will finally enter into the fullness of God's blessing, where the temple of the Lord will be rebuilt, not finally from, with bricks and mortar, but with people, with us, with those who have been converted to the worship of the one true living God. And all of that must have been hugely encouraging and comforting for the residents of Jerusalem who hear this for the first time. But the question they surely must have asked was this. How is this all going to come about? How will the kingdom come? And the answer God gives here has to do with the coming king whose kingdom it will be. Let me read to you verses 9 to 15, which follow on from what Marilyn read. And the word of the Lord came to me. 
Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to, to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall, he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and, the, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So here's the picture. Zechariah is to pick up some spare precious metals from these three three friends of his who've also come back from Babylon. He's to take those medals to Josiah the jeweler and have him make a crown. Then he's to pop over to the high priest's house and put the crown on his head. Now you have to figure that Joshua the high priest must have wondered what on earth was going on that morning. Because a crown did not belong on the head of a high priest. If anyone was to be crowned, it should have been the governor Zerubbabel whom we met last week, remember, Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of King David, therefore an heir to the throne. The one we saw in chapter 4 is the one who will complete the rebuilding of this second temple. By right, Zechariah should set the crown on Zerubbabel's head, but that's not the instruction. He crowns Joshua, the high priest from the tribe of Levi, as though Joshua were the king. And everyone must have been scratching their heads that day as the Old Testament law was clear that no one could be king and priest at the same time. And then as if that's not all crazy enough, Joshua's barely had enough time to adjust to the feeling of having a crown on his head, then it's taken off again. So, so in summary, someone turns up at your door with a crown in their hand. They say, put this on. They shout at the top of their lungs, long live the king. Then they whip the crown off and they take it away to put it on display at the about-to-be-built temple. Clear? One of my favorite songs that we've sung with the kids over the years has this chorus. Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. God made him the boss of everything because Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. But the fun then comes in the verse, because then we go around the group of the kids and we sing, Reagan is not the boss, uh-uh. Luke is not the boss, uh-uh. Ben is not the boss, uh-uh. Penny is not the boss, uh-uh, because Jesus is the boss, because Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. I think Zachariah broke out into this song at this point uh, right here, and he, he looks at Joshua and says, Joshua, you're not the boss, uh-uh. Joshua, you're not the boss, uh-uh, because Jesus, the true Joshua, is the boss. The Joshua whose name in Greek is Jesus is the boss. Jesus, the promised branch or shoot, as referred to here, as we already saw in chapter 3, who would sprout up and branch out and bring his kingdom. Jesus, who would come and by the power of his spirit, 
build the true and living temple, here's the third house in our passage, which is us, would come as the ultimate king and the ultimate priest, the one who would bring the kingship and the priesthood together. How is all this going to happen? How's the kingdom going to come? It's going to come with the arrival of the true king who will defeat all those who are opposed to him once and for all and be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. The kingdom would come with the arrival of the true priest who would give himself up on a cross as the final sacrifice, paying for our sins so that they could be once and for all sent away. Your sin can be exiled forever because of Jesus, never to rear their ugly heads again. Don't you look forward to that day? I know I do. God's commitment to live with us is rock solid, but it required an eviction and it required a coronation And in Jesus, we have both. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us, but thank you for how you give us such vivid pictures, different ways of understanding the good news of what Jesus has done for us. So much of this does feel foreign and bizarre and strange to us, but through it we see your commitment to remove our sin, to deal with, with dishonesty, to deal with sin of which has not been repented of, and to bring into this world one who is going to make all things right, make all things new, deal with everything that might hinder our communion and fellowship with you. We praise you and thank you for doing all of this through your son, Jesus who is indeed the mighty king, who is indeed the boss. May we submit to him fully in our lives this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.